Picture this, you're sitting down to watch a live poetry performance. The first poet takes the stage, and as they begin to read, they're accompanied by a live jazz band. If this sounds intriguing, well, you're in luck. International Jazz Poetry Month returns to Pittsburgh on May 2nd. The festival features more than 50 artists, including local jazz icons and poets from Algeria, Cuba, Sudan, and Ukraine. Tickets to watch online or in person at City of Asylum's home on the north side are free. Get yours at cityofasylum.org before they're gone. Today on CityCast Pittsburgh. When the city announced the appointment of new police chief Larry Scarato, they didn't mention his gay and biracial identities. We talked to him yesterday on the show. Y'all should listen if you haven't already. He even shared his professional coming out story. And he said that that personal information wasn't part of the announcement because he wanted to be introduced on merit rather than the factors outside his control. But that he's proud to serve as Pittsburgh's first openly LGBTQ plus chief. And he hopes that that lived experience is going to have a lasting effect on local policing. All that said, how does our LGBTQ plus advocacy community really feel about it? Reporter Jordana Rosenfeld of Pittsburgh City Paper is with me to get a sense of what, if anything, having an openly gay police chief means to them or to the city. It's Wednesday, August 16th. I'm Megan Harris, and here's what Pittsburgh's talking about. Hey, Jordana, welcome back to CityCast. Thanks so much for having me. So folks who listened to this show yesterday would have heard all this, but I kind of want to start with our beginning, you and me, because I think we both kind of had this same thought at the same time. Like I saw this Kuberg story that we had a new chief and he's the first openly gay person to serve. But then in the comments, people were understandably not so psyched about it. Like, okay, cool. You're one of us, but also ACAB, which we asked him about yesterday. Y'all please go listen. But what kind of drove you to start this whole reporting journey? Yeah, I think kind of like a similar curiosity of thinking like, oh, yeah, this is cute. But like, I wonder, actually, does anyone care? You know, I think like some of the uh, in particular, like one of the folks that I spoke to was like, this would have been like so fucking amazing and cool 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. But like, what is it? What does it mean today? I don't know. And it's like less symbolically meaningful, I think, just on its own today in terms of where we're at. But so, yeah, I really wanted to find out, um, does anybody care? Does anybody think that um, or like expect any kind of changes in Pittsburgh because of this? Yeah. So what did you hear from people? Um, were they excited, hopeful, upset, totally unaffected? Yeah, there was like a a, a small range of uh, opinions, I think, like ranging <laughs> from the like more like liberal, like, you know, excited to see the representation and like cautiously optimistic to, yeah. you know, like feeling kind of distressed and ashamed and tired and and concerned that um, kind of having like a gay figurehead for this organization that, you know, as police is historically, you know, invested in upholding the status quo that like oppresses and marginalizes gay people and queer people and people of color, that kind of having having a gay figurehead would make it easier for them to to not have any introspection about their behaviors. And you were kind enough to record your interviews for us. Um, we have a little bit of that, a taste of that in in that person's voice. 
how does it make you feel to have a gay police chief? Honestly, it scares me because I assume that it means the police department will wield that fact to shut down the, the rightful fears and complaints of queer and trans people who experience violence at the hands of the police. Yeah, um, that was Dave Lemansky, who uh, has freelanced for City Paper writing about uh, queer history in Pittsburgh and queer nightlife. And they've spent a lot of time like, you know, when they when they went back digging through the archives looking for evidence of historical queer life in Pittsburgh, what they found was that a lot of what has made it into the historical record is, you know, like accounts of gay life kind of through the perspective of the police records of like the police uh, arresting people for cruising in public parks or like yeah. entrapping like consensual gay adults who were having consensual gay sex outside of their homes in Pittsburgh. Um, you know, a, a handful of raids of queer bars that kind of like that's what made it into the newspapers and into the historical records um, rather than, you know, like retellings of queer life in our own words yeah. or that focus on kind of like joy and abundance. It was, you know, like a lot of stuff about policing of mm-hmm. this community in Pittsburgh. Yeah. Um, and it seems like the the comments that you got kind of ran the gamut. Um, I guess on the flip side, uh, you talked to Sue Kerr. She's been a blogger in our community for literally decades. Um, her blog is called The Pittsburgh Lesbian Correspondence. Um, what did you hear from her? Well, Sue, like as a as a person of the Gen X generation, um, has, a, you know, remembers what it was like to be out and active in the public sphere before kind of anybody else was publicly out. Mm-hmm. She said that that kind of this shows to her, this feels like it's a different Pittsburgh now than it was when she started blogging in 2005. Um, mm-hmm. She also said, though, that she's, you know, like realistic about what that means um, and acknowledges that that doesn't mean that we're going to see any kind of like revolution in policing or in the like objectives or tactics of policing. Um, but she does hope that having somebody in charge who like understands a little bit of the lived experience of LGBTQ people. Um, hopefully that will filter down through the rank and file. And then she's hopeful about kind of recognizing the the reality that um, the police do a lot of the referrals to social services that happen yeah, in yeah. our community. You told a story that I think a lot of us have seen evidence of um, the protect trans kids uh, signs that we've had in in yards across the city, um, rightfully so. But kind of the backstory of that being that, you know, this family had had a lot of contact with police. They were trying to get some kind of resolution for a neighbor that had been harassing them, um, according to court records. And, you know, Sue wishes that instead of just coming and responding, they had been able to connect this family with resources sooner. Right. She um, addressed the the story of the family in the north side that I that I did a lot of reporting on for city paper. Um, and, you know, she said that the that the family said that while the police officers that they interacted with were professional and they were respectful, um, they weren't really proactive in helping to resolve the situation. Um, and if they had like kind of clocked that this was a potentially emergency situation, that like this was a serious situation where the family was being harassed based on. Um, you know, the two parents being gay and them having a transgender daughter, um, they might have connected them with perhaps the like Hugh Lane Wellness Foundation, which is the organization that ultimately ended up providing them with legal aid when they when they took the neighbor to court. Mm -hmm. And uh, it was a little bit of a it it took a little more work than 
Sue feels was ideal to get a summons issued to the neighbor. Um, that that's something that the police could have done on the scene if they had, you know, realized the severity, if they had been more keyed in to the kind of dynamics at play in the situation. And I think there's kind of this odd disconnect there with, you know, the I know that in the academy that they introduce what are often young white men, um, by and large, in the academy classes to different kinds of wraparound services um, for a variety of things like parenting resources. If you don't have the resources to diaper your child and feed your child to folks who are facing food insecurity. Um, but if you don't have the lived experience to like feel what that stress is in the moment and, you know, kind of identify with somebody, it can be really difficult for the victims in that situation to feel heard and seen by officers who have absolutely no idea what this feels like. Um, so, yeah, it's, it's been interesting to kind of see this this conversation play out. Um, let's hear from Sue herself. I would hope she would think deeper than that and realize that this is um, it's important to build relationships and connections and, you know, to understand why they may not be there. But that it's on the police department to do a lot of the heavy lifting there. I hope that, you know, maybe we can look for other initiatives. You know, the police do a lot of community service, a lot of projects, a lot of community building. Um, you know, our LGBT groups and organizations plugged into that. That seems like such a small thing, but, you know, just just bringing us into what's already going on and, you know, seeing if we can move forward. Yeah. Um, and that's actually a really interesting point. Um, you know, Sue and and you kind of in in that assessment are acknowledging the fact that a lot of times the police are in the position of making referrals to social services. Um, however, like, is that something that they're really equipped to do? Is that something they should be doing? And that's totally different. Right. And a bigger conversation right. we're having nationwide right now. Yeah. And, and that was something that I heard, you know, when I spoke to folks at Proud Haven was kind of this idea of like, do the that's not what the police are for, you know, like the police, that is the role that unfortunately, you know, because of all of the funding cuts from our social safety net programs and all of the money that has been funneled into policing and prisons, um, they kind of become the default like provider of social services or whatever. Like they, we look to the police to solve all of these kinds of problems that arguably would be better solved by like non-carceral, non-policing community resources you know, one approach to that is to to make them better, to try to make the police better at, you know, doing that of like doing the kind of social service provision. Um, if you're going to respond, we want you to know how to do it well and accurately and with respect and dignity. Right. That's kind of like more of a reformist perspective, whereas mm-hmm. like a lot of queer people um, really kind of would like to see a more fundamental shift in the role of policing, would like to see more resources given to communities to support themselves and and to these like social safety net programs to have them built back up so that we can have non-police solutions to situations that don't need the police. Do you like to dance? Look at 
beautiful art, eat gourmet snacks, people watch, well mark your calendars for Friday, June 7th for one of my favorite parties in Pittsburgh. It's Mattress Factory's 25th Garden Party. The theme this year is make-believe, and it's all to celebrate and support the creatives in our community. There's going to be live music, an open bar, an art auction, and probably my favorite, the costume contest. Trust me, I will be judging yins, and so will everyone else there. Be playful, be imaginative, explore your magical realm, because this is a theme party. You want to come dressed to impress. You must be 21 and up to attend, and rest assured, every dollar raised goes directly towards supporting the museum, its art, its education, and all of its community outreach initiatives. Get your tickets now to the 25th Mattress Factory Garden Party. They are in our show notes and online at mattress.org. When I spoke with folks at Proud Haven, which is uh, an, an overnight shelter, on the north side for like young queer and trans people experiencing homelessness. And they do a lot of uh, community work, helping folks like resolve problems in their lives without involving the police. They really said, I spoke with uh, Jamie Martina, who's the volunteer chair of their board, who said that like, well, I don't really feel like the police have the answers to problems that are facing the Pittsburgh queer community, like lack of access to affordable housing, lack of access to jobs that pay a livable wage with health care. Um, you know, lack of access to treatment for substance abuse disorder. Um, those are so it felt the the like question of whether or not the police chief is queer felt a lot less relevant to them um, because they don't see the police as like partners in building up the queer community. When I've heard you talk about this before, it's like this bigger question of what are the police for? Right. Um, and I and I found that that the way that people felt about the significance of the identity of our police chief had a lot to do with what they felt the police were for and whether or not they felt like serving and protecting was really a true objective of the police. Um, it like is what the police say that they do. Um, however, if you look at the like historical origins of the police, where they come from, why they exist, they exist historically to break strikes and to capture, you know, enslaved black people who ran away from their enslavers. Um, and like at no point really was there a hard reset where the police said, wait, like, let's reevaluate who are we really serving here. Um, Our government like, doesn't it, really do hard resets all that often. <laughs> that's true. Um, and kind of when it comes down to it, when you do like a really kind of critical analysis of what the police actually do, as opposed to what they say that they do, um, you know, you find that they they work to uphold the existing power structures. They work for the interests of the people with money and the people with power. They make things seem OK and placid for the people who have their needs met so that like people don't have to deal with like visible difference or they don't have to see the like violence of our capitalist system. Well, and I want to go back to the historian you spoke to, Dade, because they had, I thought, a really important point. You know, it is so resolutely tiresome to me when queer people think that somehow in the last 50-odd years since the Stonewall riot that the state has somehow rearranged itself to accommodate us. If you are queer and you think that you are being accommodated by the state, it is because you are betraying people more vulnerable than you and you don't even know it. Yeah. Um, I think, like, one of the things that I found so interesting in this conversation um, about, you know, the significance of the identity of, like, particular police officers 
was that, you know, the what is typically acknowledged as the modern origins of the gay pride movement or whatever, you know, Pride Month, it happens in June because we are commemorating um, what was like a a violent pushing back against police violence that queer people did at mm-hmm. the Stonewall riots that a lot of people, straight people and gay people alike, you know, think about Pride Month as a time to get drunk and, you know, have rainbow colored merchandise. And that's not what um, Pride Month exists to commemorate. Pride Month exists to commemorate like an uprising against police violence against queer people and trans people. And and so it was it was interesting to me to hear uh, in that great interview that you did, Megan, with the new police chief to hit for him to say how much he has enjoyed participating in um, Pittsburgh's pride events and like marching in uniform. There's like a whole a whole continuous community conversation about whether or not cops should be at pride in the first place. Yeah, I've heard a lot of that. Um, And of course, like anytime there's any big event in our city, uh, a parade or anything like that, of course, they're standing to the side because that's required as part of our city permit structure. Um, But marching is a different thing. Um, And I know a lot of people have had, you know, different feelings about that. Um, I guess if we, you know, kind of zoom out and we acknowledge the power structures such as they are, unfortunately, what do you think can be done? You know, do these organizations, do queer people in our community feel like police can really be an ally for them? Because Chief Larry Scarato yesterday acknowledged the historical harms that have been perpetrated by the department that he now leads. But does that matter? Is that enough? That's a good question. I think it's not enough. Um, I think it's certainly more than has been provided in the past. And I did speak with, you know, some queer people who were curious about whether or not he would be willing to acknowledge that. Yeah. Um, and were kind of like, you know, fearfully expecting that maybe he wouldn't. Um, and so, yeah, it was nice that he that he was willing to acknowledge that. Um, however, it kind of like in the way that he talked about it, it kind of seemed like he viewed those as aberrations. Um, as like examples of the bad stuff that can sometimes happen rather than like part of the mandate of the police, um, which is to like enforce the like cisgender, heterosexual, white, middle class behavioral norms on everybody and to kind of squash visible difference. Um, something that I heard when I spoke with uh, Jamie Martina and August Copeland of Proud Haven was that like, what they would really like to see, you know, would be a police chief who was willing to come out and and to like powerfully stand with the queer community and with the black community of Pittsburgh and say that, like, I am more with you than I am with the police, which is really not what Chief Scarato is saying. And I'm not sure that's something he can say. I don't know. Right. I don't think that the police would like that very much if, the, yeah. if their leader said that. And kind of as I was thinking about, like, well, what would a really like radically like pro queer police chief do like maybe he would advocate for his budget to be reduced and for that money to be put into affordable housing you know like that would really be a radical or to mental health service like it could stay within public safety adjacent stuff like crisis response alternatives things like that like so you're right um and that's not what the chief is doing i don't think that's something that anyone would expect of a police chief to do Almost no elected official, appointed official ever says, I want less money. Like, that, that's right. just the reality of an office. Right. And the question, the question does come up, um, you know, of like whether can he actually satisfactorily serve both sides in quotation marks, you know, both sides being 
the like police who are invested in continuing to do their policing thing with more money and the queer community, many members of which would like to see that money spent elsewhere, would like to see less of an emphasis on law and order and more of an emphasis on like communities thriving and people having what they need to survive. And he said that he hasn't reached out to any of our, you know, queer identifying organizations, advocacy groups, things like that, but that he will. Um, Did you talk to people who said that they want to hear from him? In a general sense, yes. I think, you know, I did acknowledge when I was talking to some of the like more specific groups that they're like, are optical considerations for them to make about like whether or not they want to be publicly in dialogue with the police that like Mm. if an organization in Pittsburgh that serves the queer community is doing that, that will make some members of the community feel less safe going to them for support. Um, So, yeah, it's like a very complicated and fraught process. And I I think can't speak for anyone about whether or not they would like to hear from him. But I think like I think in general people would like to know that he cares and that it's something that he's thinking about and that even if it kind of is just like a subtle difference in the way that he's approaching his job, um, folks who are concerned about, um, yeah, for folks who want to talk to members of those different departments, like about the needs of the LGBTQ community. They want to have a conversation with a human that doesn't involve going straight to the police chief. Right. Um, And to have a conversation with a human that they like can reasonably expect will be like, you know, plugged in on a basic level to the like needs and dynamics of the community in Pittsburgh. Um, And so there I have not I spoke with uh, somebody from the Department of Public Safety who said that they're in the process of doing this initiative. Um, They don't really have a timeline, but they hope to have a public announcement soon. Well, Jordana, thank you so much for this reporting. Um, It was a joy to be in partnership with you. I hope we get to do it again soon. Yeah, thank you so much. We'll have links in our show notes to our conversation yesterday with Chief Larry Scarato. And of course, Jordana's wonderful piece for City Paper, which you can also find for free on newsstands all this week. A little more news before you go. The city launched a new initiative from August to October to promote, quote, a culture of peace and resolution. It looks like sort of an events page that lives on the city's website. If you have an event that you think fits the bill and you'd like Mayor Ganey's megaphone, you can submit them at engage.pittsburghpa.gov. We'll have a link directly to the submit page in our show notes. And Pittsburgh could get another professional hockey team. The North American Hockey League is launching three professional women's hockey teams, and Pittsburgh is a possible location. WESA has had some great reporting this summer on all of the considerations behind it. Some of the other U.S. cities on the table are D.C., Philly, Boston, New York, and of course there are a bunch of contenders in Canada too. Members of one of our local recreational teams, the Pittsburgh Puffins, told WESA that they're really excited, especially because it could mean more opportunity for girls' youth sports. That's all for today here on CityCast Pittsburgh. If you're liking the show, please tell someone, rate us, leave us a nice review, and make sure you're subscribed to our Hey Pittsburgh newsletter. We'll be back tomorrow morning with more news from around the city. Talk to you soon. Should I say city paper and it's also on newsstands? I forget that there's print paper out there.